I remember one time Stacy and I were driving down to, I think we were heading down to Boise and there was a windstorm. I like to go through the mountains because I prefer to drive on like 95 if we head down. I just like going through the hills, sides and everything like that. The beauty, creation. And we got down past St. Mary's and there was a big windstorm. And literally branches were falling on the road all around us. And there was one that fell right like in front of us, enough that we could slow down a huge branch, would have like really nailed the car, maybe did some damage at least to the car, not us, if not us. We were able to go around and it was just crazy. I remember getting through there and if you've ever been like that, whether it's in a snowstorm or anything in life where you have this intense pressure for this period of time and then you get through it and you're like, oh, man, just just such a sense of peace that you can literally feel the pressure lift off of you. And sometimes you feel your body just respond to that peace. That, that finally peace. I believe that God wants us to live in a place where when we are under pressure, that we can get to this place of finally peace. Not just after the pressure, but in the pressure. You know, I've, I've talked about this guy before. I had a friend that I used to work with when I was at Dave Smith's. He was a salesman, real happy guy. Uh, some of you may recall, sometimes I don't know how many times I've said something in, after almost 17 years of preaching now. If you ever run into a guy named Ryder Erickson in the Pacific Northwest, you can say, Pastor Corey has mentioned you like five times in 17 years. So uh, I used to work with this guy, and he was just a happy guy, like so happy, it literally irritated me. <laughs> I would question whether he was being real or not, because he was so happy. But... It didn't matter what was going on, the guy always had a smile on his face. And, and here's the deal, like, he sold more cars than most any other salesman at Dave Smith Motors. Now, you might think that's why he had a smile on his face. There's truth to that. However, the, the idea that you could sell a lot of cars and not have any problems is not a reality. Like, he had more problems than most other salesmen because he sold more cars than most other salesmen. That meant that he had to deal with the pressures of upper management. He had to deal with grumpy sales managers. That he had to deal with other salesmen. That he had to deal with slow service. That he had to deal with the general problems of just trying to get a car through the process and into the customer's hands. Most people don't realize there's a lot that goes with that. And yet, throughout all of that, the guy always had a smile on his face. Because I truly believe he knew that it was all going to work out anyways. That there was a peace about Ryder Erickson that has impacted me enough that when I became pastor, I would mention his name like five different times over seven, almost 17 years now. There was a peace about him, a peace that I desired in my own life. And that's what I want us to really focus on this morning. How do we get to that place of, can I say, finally peace? Because there is a peace that we can maintain, but there is a finally peace that is a peace that goes beyond understanding, right? And that's the kind of peace I believe that God wants us to not just attain, but live in throughout all the pressures of life. 
Now, last week, as we began chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we're continuing in the series. If you've noticed, I slowed us down. We were doing one chapter a Sunday. We got to chapter 4, and we went to, to uh, two Sundays, and now chapter 5 will be like four Sundays. So the first four verses of chapter 5, we looked at the elders, and what I, I want to stick with this idea is that Peter was trying to address the leadership of the churches in that area who were suffering great persecution, and he wanted them to reflect what it looked like to be mature Christians. Not just what it looked like to be elders in a church, but understand all he was asking them to do is reflect what it would look like to be mature in their faith. And so he threw out, in case people didn't understand, what maturity looks like under pressure. And he gave these three not buts. It's not compulsion, but willingness. Not dishonest, but eager. Not lording, but examples. Examples of what? Examples like Jesus, the chief shepherd how he handled pressure, how he was a servant leader. The way he led was by serving. The way he led was by serving. Now, if you pay attention to something, you will notice that the words that are used to describe immaturity versus maturity, they contrast with words humble and pride. Somebody who's willing, somebody who's eager, and somebody who's an example like Jesus, what do you think of them as? They're a very humble person. They're always willing. They're always eager. They're, they, they're, they're just like Jesus, willing to serve others. But somebody who under pressure, who is compulsive and dishonest. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that dishonest actually has more to do with doing things without heart doing them without heart. So somebody who's dishonest does things really without heart, doesn't seem like there's any heart behind what they're doing or saying, and they're a grumpy boss, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like they're a little bit prideful. Maybe that's just me and I put it on the screen for you to say prideful so you would agree with me. But have you ever been around somebody like that? The two different types of people under pressure. In a sense, I believe that Peter was telling leaders, people of influence, that when under pressure, if you want to reflect maturity in the faith, then that is reflected not by being haughty, but by being humble. Which leads to today's verses. Verses 5 through 7. If you have your Bible, turn there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 through 7. I think it's interesting if you really think about the fact that Peter gives a lesson on humility here to other leaders. If you know anything about Peter's story, Peter come across early in his faith. Now, he did have faith and he did follow after Jesus, but 
while being young in his faith and young in his following, following, if you follow what Peter said and some of the things that he did, even up until the crucifixion when he pulled out his sword to chop off a soldier's ear, you would notice that there was a little bit of haughtiness inside of Peter, that there was a little bit of pride. You know what? When everybody else quits following you, Jesus, I will still be following you. What a bold statement of faith, but what a prideful statement. Peter was going to pull out his sword and defend the Lord, the God that is all-powerful, like he could do something about it. Peter is here giving us the lesson on what it means to either be prideful under pressure or have humility under pressure, and humility is always tied with peace. The verses say this this morning that he would write to encourage the church under pressure. He says, likewise, you younger people. Now, remember, he just addressed the leadership of all these churches. Now he's looking at these gathering of churches in this area. All of you churches in the Silver Valley, all of you leaders act this way. Now, likewise, likewise, you younger people. He specifically calls out the younger generation under pressure. When you're under pressure, you submit yourselves to your elders. Then he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. What we see here is Peter's contrasting submission and humility with pride and anxiety. The truth is, the natural response for most of us, I'd say most everybody, when you are under great pressure in life, the natural response comes from pride. Now, some people may not even realize they're responding in pride. But that's what we're going to tackle this morning, because that's what it is. When you're under pressure, think about how you respond when you're feeling pressure, when you're feeling pressure, when you're feeling pressure, when you're feeling pressure. The pressure is all around. You guys start to feel that pressure yet? The pre- how do you respond? Quite often, the way that people respond under pressure, you get defensive, right? You think that you need to defend yourself. I need to stand up for who I am. I need to stand up for what I believe. I need to stand up and defend my reputation. Or when you're under pressure, you get angry. And why do you get angry? Well, I understand some people get angry because they're fearful, which is still pride, which I'll get to. And some people get angry because it's a power play and it's prideful. And then, of course, some people respond in sorrow. They're just sad all of the time because they're under so much pressure. And why are they sorrow? Why do they have sorrow in their life? Because they have fear and they have worry, which is still pride. All of these things and the way that people respond lead to people wanting to try and control their situation. 
all of those can lead to control. And controlling in those situations when you're under pressure comes from a place of pride. And so I want to give you kind of a little biblical idea this morning, just from Scripture, not from Corey, of pride. Pride, number one, is self-satisfaction. God says to Israel in Hosea 13, 4 through 6, he says, I've been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge no God but me, for there is no other Savior. I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land. But when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. It's so easy when we get to a place of being satisfied in life, like there's no major problems going on in life, to become proud and forget God and our circumstances. Number two, pride is self-sufficiency or self-reliance. Self-reliance. Moses warns the people of God in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 17. I'm just going to skim through these verses. What's going to happen when they find rest in the promised land? Verse 11, beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God. For when you become full and prosperous, kind of sounds like what he said to Hosea, right? And have built fine homes to live in. When your flocks and herds have become very large, your silver and gold have multiplied. Like when you get to a place where you don't think you have a lot of problems in life, do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God. And you say in verse 17, now I'm skipping a little bit. This is what the people will say. You say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and my own energy, my own efforts. Pride is putting yourself in that place where you would say, I did this. I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that's in control of everything that happens. Number three, pride considers itself above instruction. Jeremiah 13, 9 through 10, God says to the people of Judah, this is what the Lord says. This shows you how I will rot away the pride of Judah in Jerusalem. These wicked people refuse to listen to me. They stubbornly follow their own desires. They refuse to listen and follow whatever it is that they want to do. They've placed themselves above instruction. Pride considers itself above instruction. Number four, pride refuses to trust in God. Proverbs 28, 25. This is the contrast between pride and trust. He who is proud, who, he who is of a proud heart, stirs up strife. But he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Will be prospered. See, there's a contrast here. This is what a proud heart does, but this is what somebody who trusts in the Lord receives in life. When pride keeps us from trusting God to take care of us, there's two, two possibilities, right? We feel a false security based on our own imagined power and strength and effort to avert uh, catastrophe, and the others that we realize we can't guarantee our security, and so we begin to feel anxious and worried, and we allow fear to come in. That's what pride does. 
Number five, the final one, pride is anxious about the future. Somebody hear me because you think worry and anxiety had nothing to do with pride. You're just a worry wart. You know what somebody is, what's really being said when somebody says you're a worrier? That you're prideful. And I'm going to use this scripture to prove it. Isaiah 51, 12 through 13, God says to an anxious Israel at the time that their problem is pride. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass and you forget the Lord, your maker? Can you imagine I'm stressed out? I'm anxious. And what am I stressed out about? What am I anxious about? I'm under pressure. I'm under pressure about what's going to happen next, about what's going to happen in the future, about what tomorrow brings. And God looks at a people who say they believe in an all-powerful God who cares for them, and he says, who do you think you are to have fear inside of you? Who do you think you are to be afraid of man, what man can do to you? Who do you think you are to worry about what tomorrow will bring? Who do you think you are? What's he saying? If you think you're somebody, that means that you're somebody that's full of pride. That's how subtle pride is. Pride is the root of all anxiety. Stuff happens. And when stuff happens, we either allow that pressure, that stress, that anxiousness to draw us closer to God, or we allow it to pull us back into ourselves. And that's where we we get to those statements where we'll say, you know what, I'll just take control. I'll get it done. Nobody needs to tell me. I can take care of myself. I can defend myself. I will, I will, I can, I can. Whatever you want to throw out there, it's all about you. It's all about me. I can do this. That's that haughty spirit. I'll take control. Now we might understand why Peter transitions from elders to young people. Let's just be honest. The younger you are, the more you think you know. I've been there. I'm now probably in what they might consider middle age. I don't know. I'm real close to senior. I've learned a few things. I still think I know a lot, but I'm learning that I don't know a few things in life. And so the older you get, the realize the less you know, right? And so he would, he would address younger people under pressure. Like, listen, I think I know that you know it all. But I want you to be humble. And that's why I've told the elders to be humble and to show the way. They're to be an example for you. Now, I know you think that you have all the knowledge and your knowledge is more advanced than their knowledge. It's not just in, you know, the 21st century. I'm sure it was back then, too. 
young people always think they have the new knowledge, the fresh knowledge. They know the way. They know better than the older people, right? They don't always think that, but oftentimes, I know I'm generalizing, that's the way we will get sometimes when we look at the older generation. But Peter is specifically saying, not just to a generation back then, but to a generation today, learn to submit yourselves to your elders. Again, I talked about this a few months ago. The idea of submitting is that you would be willing to lower yourself. The only way for you to be able to receive something is if you are lower than that thing you're choosing to receive from. As I explained with a bottle of water, the only way for me to really get a drink of water to quench the thirst in my life is to be able to elevate the water up high enough and my mouth to be low enough to be able to receive from that bottle of water. The idea of submitting always has to do with the ability to be able to receive. You cannot receive from people you will not submit to. And so in order to receive something, and he's saying that these elders, they've shown the way. They're showing the way. If you want to be able to receive something from them, you need to be able to submit to them. Because even though you have all the knowledge, they have wisdom. And there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is great. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. But wisdom is the idea that you have the experience of knowing how and when to use knowledge. If you want to receive wisdom into your life, if you want to receive something that came through experience, because that's the other side of knowing, then you have to be willing to submit to the elders who have been through some things themselves. Get rid of that prideful spirit that you know it all. And then, as if Peter realizes he's addressed the elders and the younger people, he doesn't really want to leave anybody out of this idea of submitting and humility. And so he, he reminds them again, you know what, why don't you all just learn to be submitted one to another? Can you imagine a submit fest? Like, here's the contest. Every single day, it's a challenge of who submits to who and who submits the most. And so... In the end, we're all going to get a great reward. And I know that that reward is so great, I want to be the winner. So every morning I wake up and I try and find as many people as possible to submit to. Can you imagine if that was the life of all Christians? That we would just submit to one another? constantly be in this place of submission? What kind of atmosphere would be created? What kind of life would be able to take place? How healthy that would be? Learning to submit to one another. I'm constantly going to lower myself in order to be able to receive from you. I don't care who you are because you're valuable and you have something to give. And then he says, not just submit to one another, but be clothed in humility. Clothed in humility. Be clothed translates this rare word that refers to a slave who puts on an apron right before they get ready to serve. They're clothing themselves in humility in order to serve, just as Jesus did when he washed the disciples' feet. It's the idea that we would be willing to perform the lowest of services, to do the smallest things 
for the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to understand when I say for the kingdom of God, there's a lot of like real haughty Christians that would say, oh, yeah, well, I would do that for the kingdom of God, but I'm not going to do that for you. Which the way you serve the kingdom of God is through serving people, each other. That's serving God. To clothe yourself in humility is saying, I'm willing to serve in even the smallest of things. And it's not just a once in a while thing. It's to clothe yourself, clothe yourself in humility all the time. Not just when I come to church, but out in the world, I'm clothed in humility. It's to take the, the time and the effort to, to cover your nakedness, your vulnerabilities, but you cover them not with haughtiness. You know, a lot of times we cover our vulnerabilities with pride. We cover our vulnerabilities with strength, with arrogance. We, we want people to see a different side of us. We don't want them to see our weakness. But instead, what's being talked about here in God's word is that we would cover our vulnerabilities with humility and wear it in a way that people are able to see your humility rather than your flesh when you're under pressure. Oh, there's a lot of things going on right now in life. Where can I serve? There's a lot of things going on right now in my life. What, what can I do to help? Be clothed in humility. And Peter gives us in these scriptures three reasons to clothe, you, clothe yourself in humility. The first one's kind of a negative. You want to clothe your, yourself in humility? Why? Because God resists the proud. God resists the proud. You have to understand something. When you respond to pressure in pride, when you respond to pressure in the ways that I described earlier, remember pride can be worry. When you respond in pride, not only is God not for it and dislikes it, but he is in opposition to it. He resists it. So when you're responding under pressure in a prideful way, God is against you. That word for resist is in opposition, in battle with. So you've now, because you've responded in pride and put yourself in place of God to get things done and take control of what seems like it's out of control in life that's stressing you out, is you've removed him and now he's battling against you to get that rightful place back over your life. You've put yourself against him. That's not a place we want to be. Clothe yourself in humility so that you don't put God in opposition to you. The second reason is that God gives grace to the humble. How many want to walk around with God's favor in their life, right? Understand this, that humility is not something we perform to gain God's grace, to earn God's grace. But humility is a confession of powerlessness that receives grace. That song we sang... I'm not enough. I don't know about you, but sometimes that song comes on, and I'm like, oh, I just don't like saying I'm not enough. 
Maybe that's just prideful, Corey. I know I'm probably one of the most arrogant, prideful people here. So, yes, I know I'm also preaching to myself this morning, right? But do you ever get to that place where you don't want to say, I'm not enough? And yet that's the position of a servant or a slave. Like, I'm not enough. I absolutely need you, God, in my life. I can't do this life without you. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The third thing is God may exalt you in due time. Why do you clothe yourself in humility? Because then it allows God in his timing to be the one that lifts you up. It gives him the opportunity to lift you up. Now, that might be to lift you up above your circumstances. That might be to lift you up above your enemies. It might be to lift you up above the world in general. I think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is serving God in the fullness of who he is, the passion that is inside of him because of what Jesus had done in his life. And he faces such opposition, pressure, and stress when all of those around him start throwing stones at him to kill him. Can you imagine? Now, I just want to ask you a question. If you're Stephen, how, how do you respond? If I'm out there preaching the gospel, doing what God told me to do, and somebody throws a rock at me, and then a couple more people throw a rock at me, I'll probably be picking the rocks up and start throwing them back, right? Like, what are you doing? Ouch, that hurt. Come on, just admit. Rock fight, let's go. Pride. But what does Stephen do? He, he's an example like Jesus. He says the same words that Jesus said after having went through such pressure in life, being nailed to a cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they kept throwing rocks until he was dead. And then God exalted him. And you might be thinking, that's not quite the exaltation that I was thinking. But that's all that matters is that in due time, when God chooses, if I will submit, he will exalt me in whatever way he wants to exalt me. And you may think, well, what good did that do? Well, I'm sure Stephen's not complaining. Right? But who else was there while he was being stoned? And rather than respond by picking up rocks and throwing them back, he simply and humbly received whatever the pressure, the punishment, the stress, the persecution, and the suffering was that was coming at him. He literally gave forgiveness to the people who were doing it in the moment that it hurt. While under pressure, and there's a guy that's watching over all of this, and his name was Saul. Now, Saul didn't 
all of a sudden think, wow, that was amazing. I think I'll give my life to Jesus and then kneel on the ground. And, but I will guarantee you that when Saul did get knocked off his donkey, that there was a seed that had already been planted inside of him. And that seed that was inside of him came the day that he watched the follower of Jesus Christ receive punishment and death in such humility that it impacted him. It did the exaltation of Stephen, even after it was done, helped bring transformation on this earth. So if you want the benefits of being clothed in humility, how many want the benefits of being clothed in humility? Now listen, let me read them to you one more time. He resists the proud. Nobody wants God to be against him, right? Grace to the humble. God to exalt you in due time. Who wants the benefits of humility in their life? Then you have to learn what it means to humble yourself. To humble yourself. Because humility doesn't come naturally. Supernaturally from God. Verse 6, Peter tells us how to do that. He says, therefore, humble yourselves. Everyone stop and say, humble myself. How do I humble myself? Under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I'm not going to preach this point for the sake of time, but just if we spent more time under the mighty hand of God, we'd probably have less cares in the world. Knowing what his mighty hand is and what it can accomplish, there'd be a lot less stress and anxiety if we learn what it means to, to stay under his hand. But we don't. And so we're instructed on what to do. This may be two verses I want you to understand, but it's one sentence that should be read like this. Humble yourselves, casting all your care on him. Humble yourself, casting all your care on him. It's like saying, eat politely, chewing with your mouth shut. One way to, hum to be humble is to cast your anxieties on God or to go fishing, right? How many people know the peace of going fishing? Now, Years ago, uh, I was told this story by Daryl Red, and uh, coincidentally, they moved back here like three weeks ago, and so Daryl's, we're blessed to have Daryl and Lila back with us from Nevada, and this is Daryl, the story I'm about to tell. This guy fishes like nobody else, and he was telling me that he loves fishing so much because of the peace that fishing brings. And it doesn't even matter if he catches anything. I don't, I, I've never been much of a fisherman. I'm more of a catcher. Like, I could not sit in a boat and just fish, fish, and fish and not catch anything. I can't do it. Take me home. I want to catch something. But listening to one of my elders share with me about the peace that fishing brings uh, impacted me. 
because he shared this story with me that, that fishing means so much to him. It brings so much peace into his life. It doesn't matter what he's doing. As long as his line is in the water, then he has peace. And so one day he went out and he literally threw his line in the water and the game warden came up and he's, he, he didn't have his license yet. And the game warden said, I want to see your license. He says, I don't have my license. And he says, well, what are you doing fishing? And he said, well, really, I'm not fishing. And he said, well, what's your line doing in the water? He said, I have a rock on the other end. And he said, well, I want you to reel it up and show me that rock. So Daryl reeled up his fishing pole, pulled it up, and there was a big rock on the end of his line that he had cast into the water just so that his fishing pole was in there and he could sit back and have peace. I, I want you to really pay attention to that story this morning. I don't know a lot about fishing, but I grew up around here and I would go out with friends and we would fish in the chain lakes and we would go bass fishing and sometimes, you know, I, I go up the river not very often. A couple years ago, I went up the river a few times and I'd take a hook and a worm and I would just do a little bit of catch and release. And if there's one thing I know that if you want to catch something that you have to know how to cast, right? And so there's something that goes with casting that should help you be more productive if you're into catching. And whether it, I know that sometimes, you know, you can go out in the Cordon Lane Lake and just throw it generally in the water wherever you want. You might catch a fish. But the truth is, if you're out to catch bass on one of the chain lakes or if you're up the river and you see these little ponds, like you see where the fish are, you want to hit the spots where they are, right? And so you've got to make sure that there's three things, power, precision, and release, that are all a part of casting something. And so you don't want to put too much power into it and overshoot it. Because if you're fish, fishing on the shores at, at Cave Lake, you're going to end up on, or if you're fishing in the water and you're casting towards the shore in one of those little holes, you're going to end up on land if you put too much power into it. But you can't just put nothing into it, right? Or otherwise it just plops off the side of the boat. So you gotta have a little bit of power, just a little bit of effort to be able to really cast. Most of it is in the wrist, but it still takes a little bit of power in order to do that. You gotta put some effort into casting, don't you? And then when you cast, you don't just don't cast anywhere in general, you, you cast with precision. There's, you're aiming at something. You don't want to cast off the backside of the boat. You want to cast to where the holes are, to be able to get underneath the log or wherever it might be. And so you're aiming with precision. And the final thing that you've got to do when you're casting to be successful at casting is release. Because if you don't let go, what happens? You put a little effort. You might have even put precision, but somehow that thing will swing right back at you and hit you in the face. I have had it happen. I didn't say I was a good fisherman, right? And so if we want to understand peace under pressure or the ability to be able to clothe ourselves in humility and how to humble yourselves, what Peter is saying is that you have got to have the ability to be able to cast 
Casting all of your cares, all of your anxieties, all of your stresses, all of your distractions in life with power, precision, and the ability to release. That idea of casting in the Greek, like a lot of times you hear, you just need to lay it down. Just set it at the feet of Jesus. No, you know what humility is? Humility in the idea of casting something is that you would put some power behind it so that you are able to cast it far enough away from you. So casting isn't just setting it at the feet of Jesus. Casting all of your anxieties, all of your cares, worries, stresses, and distractions in life means that you put a little bit of effort into tossing that thing so that it's far enough away from you, so that it's not near you. You don't want that thing to come right back at you. Then you just got to pick that thing back up and you keep casting it back out. Put a little effort into tossing those things off. Casting all of your cares and your anxiety. And you just don't cast them anywhere in general. A lot of people, they, they don't mind the whole casting. I don't mind casting my anxieties. I don't mind casting my cares and my worries. You know what? Let me tell you about how bad of a day I've had today, Daryl. Let me cast my cares on you. Let me cast my anxieties on my spouse. Let me cast my anxieties on anybody who will listen to me. I'm just casting them out in general. Let me spread them everywhere because it makes me feel better to cast all of my cares to as many people as I can. But that's not walking in humility. Humility is with precision when you cast. The only way to be clothed in humility is not when you cast all your cares, worries, anxieties, stresses, and distractions on everybody else, but humility means I don't have to tell anybody else. Humility means I understand that there is somebody that is in more control than I am. Humility means there is somebody who is stronger than I am, has more knowledge than I do, has more wisdom than I do, has the ability to actually change something when I don't have the ability to change anything. Humility is that you understand if I've got cares, anxieties, stresses in the world, that I will cast them in one place and one place only, and that's on him. I'm going to cast them on Jesus. I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to share with people. I don't need to spread it. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to make myself look better. I just need to put all of my cares and worries on him because he can handle it. Precision, being precise if you want to be fruitful, if you want to catch something, being precise in where I throw it. And then the release. If you don't release it, once you've put some power into it and you've aimed it where it's supposed to go, if you don't let go, it's just going to come back and smack you in the face all over again. I said that you've got to be careful how much power you put into something because you can overdo it. So I want to make sure that when you understand what it means to release something, to let go, like when we throw it out there, 
The idea is I throw it out. I throw it out once. I throw it right where it's supposed to go. I release it, and hopefully I catch what it is that I'm looking for. But you know what will happen if we don't follow the process is we just keep going. We might go to everybody else still. We might go to God, and we're just like, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Like, like I think sometimes that the more you pray about something, you're just bringing it back up inside of you and letting it go. Bring, now, I know there's something to be said for the widow that goes before the judge in Scripture, right? But there's also to be something said for letting go of something once you give it to Jesus. I'm just going to let it go and know and trust that's what's on the other side of my string. If somebody asks, like, why aren't you stressed about that? Why, why do you not feel the pressure of what you're going through right now? How is it that you can have so much peace with what you're going through? A game warden is questioning you right now. Do you feel the pressure of that? Oh, it's okay. Because I know where my string is attached to the rock on the other side. There's a relationship between humility and anxiety. Humble people cast all their anxieties on God. And casting your anxieties on God means trusting the promise that he cares for you. The final portion of the scripture today, that he cares for you and that he has the power and the wisdom to put that care to work in the most glorious way. And trust is the opposite of pride. It's the essence of humility. It's the confidence that the mighty hand of God is not there to crush you, but to care for you, just like he promised. And I want you to understand as I close this morning, this is the heart of biblical Christianity. God cares for me. God cares for me. Everybody say that this morning. God cares for me. He proved it by sending his own son to die for me. The issue was settled once for all time at the cross. Any God who would sacrifice his own son for a person like me has to care. There's no other reason why he would do such a thing. When we come to God, listen, we don't have to try and convince him to hear us. We don't have to chant. We don't have to shout. We don't have to burn incense. We don't have to ring bells. We don't have to use a priest or offer a sacrifice. We come as his children, and God gladly hears us. We don't do anything to make God care for us. But we start from the assurance, rooted in his word, that God cares for us me. And on that basis, we can unload all of our worries, all of our anxieties, all of our distractions, all of our cares, and enjoy a life of peace under pressure. Let's pray.